Well, hey, good morning, everybody, and welcome to our reunion online. It's good to be gathered together uh, in this online format. Uh, last weekend, we celebrated Easter, and on Good Friday, uh, we used the Alpha video, Why Did Jesus Die? And I'm really excited to announce today that we're going to be running an Alpha course online beginning Wednesday night. May the 6th, and it's gonna be running on Wednesday evenings for eight weeks until June the 24th. Uh, we're gonna be running it from 7.30 in the evening till nine. And so we wanna encourage you that if you have friends, and now these people don't need to be close geographically, that's the awesome thing about being able to, being able to run it online, uh, we would invite you to invite them and to come and bring a friend. That's really the way that we would love it to see it. We're not interested in just having Church of the City people involved in this. We really want to see uh, Church of the City folks, or if you're tuning in for the for been tuning in for the last few weeks, you have questions about Christianity. Alpha is really an introduction to the Christian faith. And so if you're interested in that, I would invite you to email info, I-N-F-O, at churchofthecity.ca. Express your interest, and we'll be sending out more information over the coming weeks. Well, this morning, I wanted to provide you an opportunity to get an update from our church planters in Brampton, Jeremiah and Catherine, and specifically how God has been providing for them. Hey, this is Jeremiah, Catherine, and Aruna. We're coming in all the way from Brampton, Ontario. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we're planting a church in Brampton called Church of the City Brampton. I was asked by Matt this week to just talk about a few things that we're grateful to God for in terms of his provision in this time and the, the past couple of months. Um, and I'd like to just talk about a few things. Uh, first of all, we're super grateful for the amazing people that we have that are part of our church plant. Uh, we are so grateful for God's provision in terms of their resources, their skills, uh, their own individual stories that really deepen our relationship with one another and deepen the strength of this church plant. Uh, we're also, secondly, grateful for the finances that God has provided for this church plant. Uh, since day one, we've been provided for, and God continues to provide in the form of personal donations, in the form of churches uh, taking us on financially, and also um, different organ church planting organizations. So we're very grateful for that. Uh, the last thing we're grateful for in this time of isolation and keeping away from people, uh, it can be presumably really hard to function as a church plan, but God has provided awesome technology in the form of Zoom. So every Sunday uh, we're meeting, we're gathering together in front of our uh, laptops and talking to one another. Uh, we get to worship God together uh, through music. We get to hear from the Word of God. It's been an amazing time and God has provided us this resource and we've been using it to stay connected as much as possible. So our MCs uh, are connecting as well. Uh, in this time, even though we're separated, we're actually have gone through an MC multiplication, uh, which is uh, not the best time for it, but God has allowed it to happen and, and we're seeing amazing things happen through that. And I guess on a personal note, we're really thankful for the time at home where we've been able to, to grow in our relationship and enjoy the time that we can spend with Aruna. Um, and we've actually noticed that God has answered one of our prayer requests and having deeper connection with our neighbors in a time where there's a lot of loneliness and layoffs that people are experiencing. Um, we've been spending more time walking and talking with our neighbors rather than just sitting in each other's living rooms. And we've been finding that the conversations we've been having are deeper than they ever have been before. So we're really grateful for the way that God's answered that prayer. And we're praying that our neighbors will experience hope and the love of Jesus through us. 
So thank you all for listening. Um, can, please continue to pray for us in Brampton, and we'll be continuing to pray for you guys too. And also low-key, God has provided me a new barber in the form of Catherine. She's gotten some new skills while we've been at home. And uh, she's done a good job if I don't say so myself. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Good morning, church family. I just want to give you a short exhortation this morning to continue to give uh, to the church and to the Lord, um, even in this difficult time, because uh, we've been given so much. And I give uh, because I know that uh, the Lord has given me everything that I have, um, even the life and breath that I have in my lungs uh, comes from the Lord. And I'm so thankful uh, for his continued sustenance and grace to me. Um, and I, the other reason that I give is because I want to continue growing in depending on the Lord and not depending on my resources and my abilities, uh, but trusting in him for his provision. And I'm really glad that I get to give to the local church uh, because I've been so blessed by uh, Church of the City since I moved to Guelph. And I really want to see the gospel proclaimed and believers strengthened in the city. And so it's a privilege uh, to be able to support uh, the work of Church of the City. Um, and I actually really struggled with giving in the past year and uh, recently really uh, because my income was uncertain at a lot of the time. Um, but this year I'm trying to be a lot more consistent and I'm doing that by giving as soon as uh, anything comes into my bank account. And I found that's been a really fruitful practice for me. Uh, and it's also been uh, really rich at the times when I feel anxious about giving and I feel like I can't give, um, that I look back to times when the Lord's provided for me and I see how uh, richly He sustained me in the past, uh, how faithful He's been at times when I've stepped out in faith, uh, that He is uh, trustworthy and true and He provides for us, maybe not in the ways that we expect or would like, but uh, he's so faithful and consistent in providing. That's a, such amazing privilege that we get to serve a God like that. Uh, so I wanted to encourage you with that. Uh, today, I'm so thankful for you, family. I pray that the Lord is sustaining you and strengthening you um, and blessing and enriching you in this time. I uh, love you and miss you all. Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab them? We're going to be in John 6 today, John 6. Uh, some of us, you have a physical Bible. Maybe you bought one of the John journals that we were offering at the beginning of this book study. For some of you, maybe you don't have a Bible. I'd invite you to go to the App Store. You can download the Bible. It's the Version Bible app. You can find that in the App Store. Or in your browser, pull it out and you go to BibleGateway.com and look up John 6. Well, this has been a strange time for all of us. Uh, you've maybe heard the term unprecedented repeatedly, and it's a strange time. And I've got to be honest, this whole preaching to a camera thing is really, really strange. Now, we make it seem like I'm doing this live on a Sunday morning, but the actual reality is it's currently Thursday morning and I'm sitting here in my living room. 
And it's just been strange. And what I've been realizing over the last couple of weeks, and one of the things that I'm kind of wrestling through is when you give a sermon, you can kind of feel out people's feedback. At least when you're giving a sermon live, you can see how people are responding to you. You can see the affirmation of nod heads. Certainly there's sometimes people doze off. I try not to take that too personally. Uh, sometimes I, I try to believe that it's because they had a late night or a particularly early morning. But you, in some sense, get that immediate feedback or then out in the atrium after you give that sermon, you'll hear some feedback. And this has been just such a strange reality because I'm preaching in some sense to the camera that I know will then be recorded and shown to our church family. But then Sunday mornings have felt kind of strange. I mean, I sit here in my living room with my family. We watch Reunion Online together, but I'm kind of wondering, like, what are people thinking? Do people approve of me? Do people approve of what I'm doing? Now, I think it's a very natural human thing to want to have feedback, some feedback in order to maybe help yourself get better, maybe to be encouraged. But what I realized this week and what Jesus was exposing for me is that I'd become, and maybe in some ways, becoming too dependent on people's approval for my identity and my well-being. And so I was really beginning to wrestle with that. And as we've been studying in the Gospel of John, Jesus knows and Jesus sees us. He sees our desires. He sees and understands our longings. In the Gospel, we see that he perceives things about people that even people don't perceive about themselves. And so as we go into the text today, I want to just remind us of that. And as we think about that, that the longings and desires that we have, Jesus sees them. And what he does, as we've seen in this gospel, is that he continually asks us the question, what do you want or who is it that you are seeking? And he wants to ask that question to us again today to expose what's going on beneath the surface and really at a heart level. And when we're talking about the heart, we're not necessarily talking about the physical heart. What we're talking is about your motivations, your executive center in the words of the Christian writer and philosopher Dallas Willard. Now, this morning, as I mentioned, we're going to be in John 6, verses 1 to 40. Now, there's a lot of verses here. There's a lot to cover in a short period of time. And so what I want to do is to summarize really the, about the first half of the chapters of the chapter for us. In the beginning, this is a very well-known story to many of us who have maybe a background in the church, or maybe for those of us who are not familiar or haven't been in the church, it's a fairly well-known story. And the story is, begins in chapter 6 with Jesus feeding 5,000 people. We read, and we can actually study this story in some of the other gospels. It's not just in John. It's actually found in the other three gospels as well, that Jesus and his disciples traveled by boat to the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. They were on the northwestern side, likely in Capernaum or that region, and they travel over to the other side. Jesus, his disciples have just come back to him. They've, he's, he's sent them out to do ministry. And so it appears in what we read here is that Jesus is getting away with his disciples, likely from for some retreat, likely for some teaching, really for some time of seclusion. But what we find out quite quickly in the text is that the crowd that was where Jesus was before wants, wants to find him. They're seeking him out. In one of the other gospels, we actually read that they run across uh, the, the northern part on land of the Sea of Galilee to find Jesus. And so Jesus is here on the other side. He's, he's gathered in the hills in the mountainous region with his disciples. And then he sees the crowd coming. In one of the other gospels, we read that Jesus begins to teach them. Well, as, as time passes, uh, mealtime is coming. And Jesus knows that these people are going to have a need for food. And so he asks a disciple in particular. He asks Philip. We read that in this John account. He asks Philip. He says, where are we going to find food 
for these people. Now, it's not strange that he's asking Philip this question. Philip, as we learned earlier in the gospel, is from Bethsaida, which is a city that is close to where Jesus is right now with his disciples. And so he's asking him the question, where can we buy bread for this people? Now, it tells us in the John account is that Jesus asked them this question to test him because he, Jesus knew what he himself was going to do, as we'll find out in the story, uh, as I'm about to tell it to you. We then have one of the other disciples that pipes up and says, his name is Andrew, this particular disciple says, well, Jesus, there is a boy here that has five barley loaves and two small fish. Now, barley loaves at the time, that was a bread that was quite common amongst the poorer class. These fish are not large. They're likely pickled fish that were simply uh, a side dish, really, to the barley loaves. And so what Andrew is really saying is there is some food here, Jesus, but it's, it's clearly inadequate. Now, Jesus is not phased by their comments. I mean, Philip is kind of held back by the resource limitation that he sees. Rather than sort of answering the question of where food can be found, he really says, well, we don't have enough money to buy Food. We don't have enough money to buy bread. He actually says 200 denarii would be what is required. Now, a denarii was the average labor wage for a, a, a single day of, of labor. So essentially what Philip is saying is 200 days, eight months worth of time would not pay for this crowd to be fed. We find out that there's 5,000 men. If we add women and children, likely the group is close to 20,000 people. And so Jesus is not phased by both Philip's remark nor by Andrew's saying there's an adequate meal. And he directs the disciples to have the crowd to sit down. And so the crowd sits down in an orderly way and then Jesus gives thanks. Now, if Jesus is using a common Jewish blessing, he would have said something like this in his, in his blessing and giving thanks. He would have said, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Notice what he likely would have prayed. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Jesus is not making a comment and thanking God for the bread. He's, he's, he's thanking God. He's blessing God. He's not blessing the meal. He's blessing God and thanking God as being the provider of the one for bread. We then see that Jesus commissions, commands his disciples to distribute the food. And as we come to understand, as we read the text, in the process, the food is multiplying. We're not told how it specifically multiplies. We just know that the food is multiplying so much so that everybody that is present is able to eat their fill. They're able to eat what they need. Jesus then directs the disciples to gather up the leftovers, which was also a common thing that the Jews would have done at the time to collect the leftovers. And there are so many leftovers that there are 12 baskets full. Now the 12 is symbolic, likely representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And so what Jesus has done is he's showing that he provides for his people. Well, what's the response of the crowd to Jesus in this miracle? The response is they say, truly, this is a prophet who's come into the world. Likely, as we see later in the text, they're thinking of a prophet like Moses, who has come into the world. Now, Jesus perceives the motivations of these people, and he perceives that they will likely want to take him by force and make him king. If the crowd is thinking of Moses, remember Moses was the one that led the Israelites out of slavery, they're likely thinking, oh, this Jesus will lead us out of uh, Roman rule. 
he'll lead a military campaign. So we need to make him king so that he will deliver us. And Jesus perceives this and Jesus really wants nothing to do with their expectations around what the Messiah was going to be like or who this prophet would be or he who they want him to be. And so we read that Jesus actually gets away alone further in the mountains to be alone, to be isolated. And in the process, we read in another gospel is that he tells his disciples to get into the boat and to start going across to the other side of the sea, which then leads us to the next section of the chapter, which is the disciples are in the boat. They begin crossing to the other side of the sea. Context, we read that a storm begins to begin on the sea, likely from the wind. And so the disciples are frightened by what is happening in the boat. They then see somebody walking on water towards them. And we read in the John account that they're frightened. Jesus then says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Jesus is then welcomed into the boat. And we read then in the John account that they immediately were on the other side. In one of the other gospels, we're told that the storm actually ceased. And so what John wants us to see is that Jesus's presence brings order rather than chaos. The sea in the time of Jesus and oftentimes in the scriptures is described as a place of disorder and chaos, void of Jesus's presence. Yet when Jesus is present, the storm ceases, the disciples no longer have any fear. His presence brings calm to them. We then read the next morning that the crowd, imagine if they're waking up, they notice that the boat that the disciples had been in is gone. They can't see Jesus. We read that there are other boats there from Tiberias. And so the crowd, again, wanting to seek and to find Jesus, get into these boats, and then they travel to the other side to Capernaum. Now, before we move into the dialogue that then Jesus engages with in the crowds, I think it's worthwhile noticing a few things about the first half of this chapter. The first thing is this, John, the writer, the evangelist is specifically highlighting to us the power and identity of Jesus. If we're following this gospel in the sequence that he has written, you remember what we talked about last week, that Jesus says that there are signs that he would do that would testify to who he is. And Jesus claimed to be equal with God. He claimed to be the son of God. And so here in this text, we're seeing some of these signs and the works that testify to who Jesus is. And so the identity of Jesus is on full and complete display. Secondly, it is worth noting that the limitations or the restrictions that the disciples put on Jesus and their, and their situation are not the restrictions that Jesus has. Because Jesus has unre unrestricted access to resources, as we see. Jesus is the one, as we read in the beginning of the gospel, read in other parts of the scriptures, who through him was the world created. He has access to creative power. And so Jesus is not limited by the disciples' resources. And he's certainly not limited by the resources that maybe you're feeling are tightened right now in your life. That's really important for us to understand in this first story is that Jesus is not limited in the same way that we are. A third point that I think is important for us to recognize is that when Jesus does provide for physical needs, he does it and it's an act of his grace. When Jesus does provide for physical needs, it's an act of his grace. Notice Jesus is not forced. He does not have to provide food for the crowd that has come to him. As we think about the context, Jesus was actually trying to get away to retreat with his disciples and the crowd have kind of become a disruption to him. And so Jesus providing for them is really an act of his grace or undeserved favor that he shows the crowd. 
In the same way, Jesus uh, rescuing really the disciples from the storm in the boat was another act of his grace. If we apply this to our lives, when Jesus meets our physical needs, it's an act of his grace. We are not promised on this side of heaven that our physical needs will always be provided for. It's similar to what I said a couple of weeks and that we're not promised physical healing. And certainly you can see this on a global scale. We think about the reality, a shocking reality as we think about the numbers that around 20,000 children, some estimate 22,000, I saw other reports around 15,000, but in the number between 15 and 22,000 children die every single day because of malnutrition. This is the world and the broken world that we live in. And I say this, and I mention this for a couple of reasons. One, I think it ought to provide us perspective, especially for those of us who are living in the West, who are feeling the constraints of physical resources, to remember that there is a global world out there. And that as much as we feel the pain of this circumstance and situation that we find ourselves in, there are third world countries that will certainly feel the impact of this in a more intense way than we will here in the West. It's also worth mentioning as a call to action to be praying for the world, to be praying that God provides for the needs of those that are in the world. But it's also a call to action that those who are blessed are to be a blessing. Those who are blessed are to be a blessing, that we are called as followers of Jesus to provide for the needs of others who do not have their needs met. It's also a reminder that rather than believing that God doesn't care for the poor, God shows particular care and concern for the poor in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he gave the Israelites laws that would protect the most vulnerable in society, that would give them a way to be freed from their slavery. Yet we live in a system that is incredibly corrupt and there's incredible inequality. But what we are promised is we look forward to a day when there will no longer be that inequality, where all physical needs will be met. But it's also a reminder that when our physical needs are met, it's a grace of God that he provides to us. Well, with that, let's go into the next section. As I said, the crowds are now trying to pursue Jesus, trying to find Jesus. And we read here that they find him in Capernaum and they come to him. And so if you have your Bible, join me at verse 25 of chapter six. We read this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? We saw the boat left. You weren't in it. How did you come here? They're interested. They're keeping tabs on Jesus. Notice what Jesus, how he answers them. Jesus answered them. Verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. What is Jesus saying? Well, firstly, he's not even addressing their question, right? They're asking him, Jesus, how'd you get here? And Jesus doesn't even address their question because he's going out after their motives as far as why they are there, why they have pursued him. And he says to them, you're coming after me because you saw signs. In other words, the people want another miracle. 
they become so focused on the miracle that they've missed Jesus. And this is the great risk really with signs and miracles is that you become overwhelmed with the signs and miracles that you can forget the one that actually did the miracle in the first place. And this is what Jesus is saying. You're looking for the food that perishes. You need to pursue, you need to long for the food that gives you eternal life that will last forever. What Jesus is really alluding to is himself. They want the sign. He's saying, I am the one that gave the signs. I am the one that did the signs. You just want the miracle. Look how they respond to him. Verse 28. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Again, they're focused on the surface level. Okay, Jesus, what are the works of God that we must do and what they're thinking that, that will last to eternity? What are the things that we can do to earn our way to the kingdom of God or earn our way to heaven? It's how many of us think. Salvation isn't a free gift, we think. We think we have to earn our way to heaven. This is the way the world religions think other than Christianity, which says that salvation is given through faith in Jesus. World religions teach that you need to do certain things in order to be accepted or approved of by God or their version or understanding of what or who God is. This is what Jesus says they are to do though. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You know, so Jesus, again, he's on a completely different, completely different level than them. They're looking for the works. What does Jesus say though? Faith. You must believe in the one that God has sent. This is the proper pursuit. Well, how do they respond to this? Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So now they're kind of like testing Jesus. Okay, believe in the one that, that the father has sent. Okay, well, what signs do you do? What miracles do you perform? Which is completely ironic because he's just multiplied food to feed the thousands. Yet they're looking for more. What sign? They... Think back to the Israelites in the wilderness and God providing manna in the wilderness as a sign of God giving them bread. This is how Jesus answers. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus begins with a clarifying point to say, Moses is not the one that provided you the manna in the wilderness. It's my father that provided you the manna in the wilderness. And the father has now given you bread from heaven. I am that bread from heaven is essentially what he's saying. I am the bread. I am the provider. Now, the people still seem to be missing what Jesus is saying to them and who he is claiming himself to be. And we see that in their response. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. In other words, they're still thinking of the manna and manna came each day. And they're thinking, okay, give us this bread. Keep giving it to us. They're again, still not seeing that Jesus is speaking about himself. Yet here in this next section, Jesus makes it incredibly clear. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, firstly, Jesus is kind of mixing some metaphors. And what he's saying is, is not, not that we come and eat him, that that is where our hunger is met. Notice what he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. When we come to Jesus, when we put faith in Jesus as the bread of God to and given to us, Therefore, we will never be hungry. And then he says, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This word believe is repeatedly used in John. What he's talking about is believing into, believing that Jesus is both the bread, what we need, and also the one that provides it, the one that we trust in for provision. And so Jesus is saying, I am this bread of life. I am the bread that the Father has sent. Believe and come to me. Verse 36, Jesus goes on, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. You know, he's saying it very plainly now. I am the bread of life. You've seen me, yet you're not believing in me. Verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is now talking about those who will believe in him, who the father will give to him, those that will come to believe in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, they have security with me. I'll never cast them out. Once they've come to believe in me, I will never cast them out. Verse 438, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is what Jesus said also in the previous section, chapter five, I'm doing the things that the father has sent me to do. I am not different from the father, the same as the father. I'm doing only what he has asked me and sent me to do. Verse 39, what is this will of the father? This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Once again, Jesus is talking about those people that would come to believe in him, that they are secure, that they will be preserved, by Jesus and then will be raised up, speaking of a future day when Jesus returns on the last day to eternal life and salvation. Verse 40, Jesus says, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. There's kind of two points here in verse 39. There are those that the father draws towards the son that will believe in the son. And then there are those who look to the son and believe in him. What Jesus is really saying it's, it's a both and. Those the father draws and also those that look to the son. Yet both groups who come to the son to believe in him will be preserved and lifted up on the last day and will experience eternal life, enduring life. Now, Jesus has said a lot here. But what are the things that we ought to take hold of today as we are considering the application of this text? Firstly, I think it's, it's a caution, but then an opportunity. And that like the crowds, our felt needs can prevent us or provide us an opportunity to recognize and to see our true need. Like the crowds, our felt needs can prevent us or provide us an opportunity to see our true need. In the text here, we, we see this crowd coming to Jesus and their felt need is their physical hunger and their longing to see another sign. But their longing for another miracle prevents them from actually placing their faith in Jesus. Maybe for us right now, as I said, there's the, there's the question around physical resources, the limitation around physical resources, and that's the felt need. 
And so you want that need to be met. You want the money in your account. You want to figure out a way to have that, that provision rather than the opportunity to trust the one who is the provider. And so then this is the opportunity when we have felt needs, when our felt needs are coming to the surface to recognize our true need. So in the realm of our job or our financial provision, when we have that felt need, we're challenged to ask the question, who is the ultimate provider? Are you the ultimate provider for your job and financial provision? Or is God the ultimate provider, the giver of all good gifts? It also relates to how we think about control. Maybe in this time you're feeling like you lack, you don't have a sense of control anymore in your life. That's a felt need that you have for control. That can prevent you from trusting God for control, which is your true need, that you need to trust God for control. But then the opportunity is to say, God, I want to trust you for control in my life right now. And so the felt need provides an opportunity to identify the real need, the deeper need, which is really that spiritual need that you have. I think back as the, I began this message to talk about my own longing for approval with my messages and feedback towards them. And that's a felt need that I've been feeling, but it's also provided me an opportunity to stop and to consider, am I looking too much to the approval of people for what I do? Or should I be seeking that approval from God who gives me that approval in Christ? Do you see how the felt need provides an opportunity to see my true need, which is more of Jesus's work in my life, understanding what he has done for me, and that I stand before the Father, loved, cared for, provided for because of Jesus. So we need to see our felt needs as an opportunity for us to see our true needs. But then we also need to understand as we look at this text that it's only Jesus who can meet our need and satisfy our longings. It's only Jesus that can meet our need. Now, what do I mean by need? I mean, first with the need of restoring our relationship with God. That humans live in a, with a broken relationship with God and that relationship needs to be restored. And only Jesus can mend and fix that broken relationship by living the life that we could not live and dying the death that we should have died. And then coming back to life to give us eternal life, resurrected life and hope for the future. But it's only Jesus that can meet our need in restoring our relationship with God, but also giving us new hearts. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter three, he said, you need to be born again. We need new hearts. We need new executive centers. We need new motivations and we need new desires. And Jesus meets that need where he changes our desires. He changes our motivations as we become more like him. But then the other need that he meets is that he keeps us secure both in the present and in the future. Once you come to know Jesus and place your faith in Jesus, you are always with Jesus. This is, this is a great, great place and a reality of, of, of trusting in Christ. It's just as there was nothing that you needed to do to earn your salvation, there's nothing that you could do to lose it. And Jesus holds you secure. And even though there are seasons of your life where you might feel distant from God, that he is not distant from you. And Jesus is holding you close and will raise you up on the last day. This is the incredible gift of his grace. So Jesus meets our needs, but he also satisfies our longings. I was reading this week, Psalm 107, verse 9. We read this, For he, speaking of the Lord, satisfies the longing soul. 
and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Maybe you're sitting there today and you have a hungry or a longing soul. I'd invite you to invite Jesus to meet that longing in your soul. We're promising the scriptures that he will meet that longing in our souls. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, this is Paul quoting Jesus. He says, my grace, Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. What this means is that we can come to Jesus in weakness and in need. It's actually the greatest posture and position to actually receive Jesus and his grace, and that his grace is sufficient for us to meet our longings, our desires, and our needs. We come to him in our weakness. And look what Paul writes then after he quotes Jesus. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest on me. He says, I'll boast in my weaknesses. I'll boast in my neediness because Christ meets my need. He satisfies my longings and my desires. And so this is what the text is ultimately pointing to us as well, is that Jesus is the true bread. Jesus is the true manna that comes to us. And we place our faith in him and then we depend on him. He is the true bread. He is the true manna. He is the true bread from heaven that we need to be sustained. He's also the true provider. He comes and he gives generously to us. And he's also our protector. He's the protector to us from the storm that we maybe are feeling in our life right now. And we have fear about what the future will hold. Jesus' presence brought calm to the disciples. I'm reminded of the quote uh, from Augustine. He said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That we were made for a relationship with God. I think of what C.S. Lewis said. He said, he, he said, if you ever have, you have desires that nothing in this world seem to meet, is that not uh, proof that you were made for another world? That if you were made to be in relationship with God and that that relationship was to be where you find satisfaction, your desires met, that because of this broken relationship with God, you don't have those desires met. And so what you need is that relationship with God to be restored. And when it is restored, and when we look forward to the coming day, when Jesus will return, that all those longings will be completely secure and to be completely met. And then thirdly, another thing I think we see from this text that's important for us to recognize is that only Jesus can raise us up on the last day. Only Jesus can raise us up on the last day. You know, many of us are looking to our own behavior or how we feel like our relationship with God is and we get, get a view of that by how well we're doing obeying him. But it's only Jesus that can raise us up on the last day. It's only through faith and by his grace that we are saved. We are not saved by our own merits. We're not saved by our own obedience. We're saved through faith in Jesus Christ by his grace his unmerited favor to us. And so this is an opportunity for us to recognize what are the things that we are looking to or trusting in for our salvation or for meaning or for purpose or for approval. As I said, for me, looking for approval from people when I have the approval of God through Christ. And so as we respond today, let's respond in repentance, asking God to change our thinking, to reorient our hearts, and then to respond in faith, believing in the one whom God the Father has sent to us, Jesus the Son, 
And so if you've never committed your life to following Jesus, believing in Jesus for what he has done for you, I want to invite you to do that today. This is the greatest need that you have to receive Jesus as the true gift, as the bread from heaven. And when we're told, we're told by Jesus that when we come to him, we shall never be hungry. And when we believe in him, we shall never thirst. I want you to hear a story now of someone in our community who shares honestly about their journey with Jesus, the ups, the downs, yet the recognition recently in his life of Jesus being the one that can satisfy that longing and the places that he had been looking to for that longing to be met that wasn't being met, that can only be met in Jesus. If you relate to the story and you'd love to share your story with us, please email info at churchofthecity.ca or if you'd like to talk to somebody about committing your life to following Jesus, email us as well at info at churchofthecity.ca. As we close today, I want to end with Jesus' words from the text that we read earlier. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, and he says to you today, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus, we pray now that we would come to you, the bread of life, the bread from heaven, and that when we come to you, broken, needy, in weakness, God, that we come to you, that we will be fed by you. God, you are the bread and you're also the provider. And so we want to trust you today and believe in you. And when we believe in you, we will never thirst. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to join our prayer time happening immediately upon the conclusion of our reunion online. And we'll see you next week, family. You are loved. And let's continue to pray in Guelph as it is in heaven.